0: Because we ended mid-parable, that's part one. There's a wealthy person, and there's a poor person in this story. If you're in Jesus' audience this day, the rest of the parable is commentary. Because you have your scripture, you have the Torah, you have the law and the prophets. If there is a poor person, you have a verse from Deuteronomy. You have the teaching of Isaiah. You have Amos. If you see the poor, give them a piece of bread. Never pass someone laying hungry. Amos says, give them bread and bring them into your house. So if you're in the audience with Jesus this day, you don't get a pass in this story. Even if you're not Jew, but you're a Roman citizen, you wouldn't get a pass in this story because the Romans have a law. There is a, a, an obligation to take care of the poor that we see. Every household is required hospitality, a patronage system. So there is someone outside your gates. That's my obligation. Your citizenship papers wouldn't give you a pass. There is a wealthy person and there is a poor person. Everything else in this story is commentary if you're in the audience with Jesus this day. And if you've been listening in on the parables now over the weeks, we know a few more things. For example, last week, our stereotyping gets busy. Last week, it was a widow and a judge. Well, now it's a wealthy person and a poor person. So what do we think we think about wealthy people? My mother had one house on Sabbath. She always said no to the lunch invitation because they were so rich. Scared her to death to go into that house. They'll have nicer china, they'll have better food, they'll have a waiter, they'll have all... So we never went to the house. What do we think we think about wealthy people? What do we think we think about poor people? We've talked about this last Sabbath. But then we've also talked about the idea of parables, that they are misbehaved stories. That up is down and in is out and the scripts are always flipped. What do we do when we know we have a misbehaved story and we have this, well, we have this urge to stereotype. There's a wealthy person and there's a poor person. Well, maybe we've learned some things. Church, maybe we're good at this now. This is our last parable for the series. So we could just decide now. There's a wealthy guy and there's a poor guy. Who's the bad guy in this story? Whoever that is, don't be that person. Don't be that person, and the end, and then we don't have to read the rest of the scary tale of going into Sheol with the ghosts and dead men talking. But if we do that, we miss important teachings, and we misunderstand this parable. Not every every parable in Luke's gospel is a great and mighty reversal. If it was, in this case, we should all seek a life of poverty so we can sit at the dinner table with God in the next life. If it is, we should all run from wealth, but Jesus doesn't say in the Bible that wealth is evil or wrong. He says it's dangerous and difficult. If this is a story of great reversals, then we should see the dead man Lazarus eating excessively, opulently, just just wasting extravagant resources in his afterlife, but we don't see that. Not every story in the Gospel of Luke is a great reversal. This one isn't. There's something else going on here. The something else is what we want to talk about this morning for a few minutes. Can we say a word about ghost stories? Is that your thing? That was a quick no from a parent. So if you're under 25, is this your thing? ghosts and and uh, well I don't know the whole nation is kind of waiting for a thing tomorrow to air that has ghosts and things. There are no shortage of tales, post-mortem tales of dead people speaking and ghosts moving around in the afterlife. It's a a popular kind of story. It's popular for Jews. It's popular for Romans. It's popular for uh, people in antiquity in ancient times. It's even popular today. Charles Dickens, if you read the front of your little program today. Charles Dickens and his Christmas story, right? The Christmas Carol. Features the grouchy guy coming back to uh, look at his life, and ghosts talk, and dead men walk. Even we tell jokes. Christians tell jokes. Uh, St. Peter died and went to heaven. Bill Gates died and went to hell. Have you heard that? Don't look it up. It's a bad joke. The husband died and went to heaven and found out his wife. Those are all bad jokes, by the way. Don't look any of them up. But we tell them, too. There's no shortage of tales like this, so we can pick up our sensitive souls and sort of relax into the story here with a wealthy man and a poor man and what happens to them in their next life. Once upon a time, there's a wealthy man and a poor man. Verse 19 again. A certain rich man who clothed himself with purple and fine linen. He feasts luxuriously every day. He wears purple. How rich is he? He wears purple. Only the Roman government gives permission for people to wear purple. So, Margot, that's purple. Look around. This is really how it was done. Only the Roman government gives permission for you to wear purple because it's a very expensive dye. How rich is he? He wears purple. How rich is he? He eats and feasts every day, not just when the prodigal comes home, not only when it's a feast day, he feasts every day, this rich man. How rich is he? He's that rich. He has a gate, a gated mansion, a compound that's all of his own. That's how rich this guy is. And then there's a poor man. We see immediately that poor man has a name, Lazarus. That makes this parable really interesting in the Bible. It's the only parable where someone has a name. Lazarus has a name, and Father Abraham has a name. Lazarus, whose name means God helps Lazarus, who lays at the gates. If the rich man wears purple, Lazarus wears sores on his skins. He hopes for food that falls from the table, but we don't read that he actually gets any of it. And he's surrounded by dogs, and maybe we should think less street rats and more service animals. These provide Lazarus his comfort as he sits at the gate. It's not food insecurity, it's starvation. It's not uh, that that he even begs. Your Bible translation might say that he's at the gates begging. Begging would be a job promotion because at least he'd be active and asking for the money. He lays at the gates. This is a chronic condition. I pinched my fingers, these two, this week. How was the last time you pinched your fingers in a door? Like that, yeah and I was all by myself, and there was no one to ask for help, and you know when that happens, your whole body revolts, and you can't figure out quick enough how to get the door open and make it stop, and you start pulling, and you can't get your fingers out, and all the things and all the words that ordained ministers say. (laughs) Like 144,000, the New Jerusalem, all the words come out of your mouth. on Wednesday I told my husband I pinched my fingers in the door you weren't even here that hurts!" immediately the purple color and the blood and the swelling and all the things and it lasted five seconds in 15 minutes it was down and gone saying all the words felt kind of good but this is not a a small situation for Lazarus this is chronic for him He will lay by the gate of the rich man and die. Luke's Jesus gives us a man so rich we can't relate and a man so poor we can't relate. We are neither of these people as we listen to this story. Man so rich, a man so poor. The story continues. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. While being tormented in the place of the dead, he looked up and saw Abraham at the distance with Lazarus at his side. He shouted, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus. Send Lazarus. You see, even in his death, the rich man is ordering Lazarus around like he still has a servant available to him. And there's a deep a chasm, a divide between them, and he's still ordering Lazarus. The man who's feasting in his life is so thirsty in his death. We'll just send Lazarus. That will solve it. This poor man gets an angelic uh, escort, by the way, into his death. The rich man just dies. Already we start to see the difference in the, the way the characters are developing. Remember, they're in this realm of the dead, and we could stop and get lost right now. Where is this realm of the dead where the dead people go? The Jews and the Greeks and the ancients have a little bit of a different idea about the zip code but it's not the most important part of the story. This is not a story about how to go to heaven or how to avoid hell. So we're not pausing for that part. The one who ate extravagantly is now thirsty. The one who was discarded is now at the side of Abraham. And the text continues. Verse 25, Abraham said, child, child, he's talking to the rich man, Remember that during your lifetime, you received good things, whereas Lazarus received terrible things. Now Lazarus is being comforted and you are in great pain. Moreover, this great crevasse, this chasm, this valley, this space that we cannot navigate, that's been fixed between us. Those who wish to cross cross over from here to you cannot. Neither can anyone cross from there to us. They're in the same space and they're segregated. And Abraham, you might think, could help. But he tells the rich man, this is how it will be. There's a divide we can no longer cross. All the rich man can see is an illustration of Jesus' teaching. Really, as he looks across and sees Lazarus at the side of Father Abraham, all the teaching of Jesus comes to life. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And woe to the rich. You already have your consolation. The story continues in verse 30. The rich man said, I beg you then, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house. Because you can do this in stories where dead men talk, okay? This is not a problem. We can leave the space of death and we can come back to the real world. Still, Lazarus is his servant. Send Lazarus. Because I have five brothers at home. He needs to warn them that they don't come to this place of agony. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They must listen to them. The rich man said, No, Father Abraham, no, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they'll change their hearts and their lives. Abraham said, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, then neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Because you, rich man, had all those resources. You had the law and the prophets. You had the Torah, the sacred texts. You had commandments. You had wealth. You had opportunity. You had someone laying right at your front door. Abraham, the ancestor. Abraham, the father of the faith. Abraham, the figure of hospitality. Abraham, sort of a quasi stand in for God until they can get to God. Abraham is not helping. Lazarus takes comfort next to Abraham, and the rich man watches. And this is the end of the story. Many people say of this story, what good is this parable for Americans? What good is this story for Americans? American congregations, American Christians, this story is of no good for us. I don't know how that resonates with you. I've been pushing back on that for a week. What good is this story for Americans in this wealthy nation? Well, here was our, a little bit of our week in the United States, well, around the world, but mostly in the United States. In the galaxy known as M87, eight radio telescopes captured a picture of a black hole. Did you see that this week? Or if you missed this like I did, this happened at Cape Canaveral. Nine, 15 seconds. Vehicle flight pressure. Ten, nine, eight,
1: seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Yeah.
0: million pounds of thrust they say. And not long after that, there's a successful triple rocket landing. This SpaceX program, this particular rocket. Supposed to be the cheap way of getting a heavy load into space now. On board this week at Cape Canaveral, my spouse almost got to see it. They went out one day and they canceled the launch, and then the next day on the airplane while he was taking off, he said they could just see all the smoke coming up from the ground. Just missed it. On board is a satellite uh, purchased, paid for by the Saudi Arabians, built at Lockheed Martin. cost $90 million to launch the rocket this week, and this is a growing commercial economy. You remember last year when Elon Musk was playing around with this super rocket and he sent a Tesla to space, right? Just pretending, we're just playing, we're just working out the kinks. The next launch for this rocket that can do these heavy payloads will be a contract with the United States Air Force. They say it will save between 70 and $300 million per launch by using this system that's been being designed. Happens here in Hawthorne, California. Elon Musk has 6,000 employees, the SpaceX headquarters. It's important because the government has all things NASA on the table now. 2024, is that the estimate where we're supposed to have astronauts back in space? So, hey, if you're in school, study math and engineering and all the things and eat your vegetables. This is why STEM jobs are the jobs. Ninety million dollars for that launch this week. People say, rich man and Lazarus. What good is that story on Americans? I don't know. Here was another small conversation in Capitol Hill this week in a subcommittee. We're supposed to be keeping our eye on what they're talking about. In the subcommittee, the representative from the 45th district in Irvine, Katie Porter, a freshman representative, went face-to-face with the CEO of J.P. uh, Chase. Chase. She created, if you didn't listen to this exchange, she created a profile for a single mother with one child who took an entry-level job with uh, J.P. Morgan at $16.50 an hour, and then she did the math of what the monthly budget would look like and told the executive from, from J.P. Morgan, he's looking like you have a little tough day there. She tells the, uh, Jamie Dimon, what would you do Mr. Dimon when she's $567 short every month and if you haven't watched the exchange, neither one of them budge. I'll have to think about it, he says, I'll have to think about it, he says, I'll have to think about it, until she finally says, you know how to spend $31 million a year, and you can't figure out what to do to get $500 a month to your employee? It was an exchange. She says, I know, because I live in Irvine, and I do drive an 8-year-old minivan, and I have been a single mom. I know what these numbers are. The next day, Jamie Dimon from J.P. Morgan issued a statement and said, we better be careful. We take good care of our employees, entry-level employees. We do better than the government. We do better than the news networks. We do better than the, the newspapers. We do better than, you better measure more than just the banks. This is all part of a bigger inside conversation as, as a Bank of America and Amazon and all the large corporations bring up their minimum wage. Or in the Adventist church this week, business meetings, at our corporate headquarters on the East Coast, Spring Council, we got the Spring Meetings, we got this report on tithe dollars in the Adventist Church for 2018. Juan Pastral, our treasurer for our worldwide business entity, he says that the Adventist Church took in $2.5 billion in tithe this year, this past year and that that's a 3% increase from the year before, and that most of that increase came in the United States. That's $50 million a week that are going in offering plates around the world in Adventist churches, Sabbath by Sabbath by Sabbath. Did you catch those numbers? 2.5 billion. We could launch a rocket 25 times. What are these parables good for? For Americans, American Christians, the American church. And where is grace in this parable? Anyway, if the wealthy man did wrong, isn't grace supposed to come in and solve the problem? And we remember now that parables are not predictions and they're not prophecy. They're stories, not systematic theology. They're little pieces of a big whole. Parables are not the whole story. And in particular, this one's not about a literal hell. And remember that Seventh-day Adventist Christians don't believe that there's a place where the flames will be on in eternity. Praise God. So this is not that story. What should American Christians do with this parable? What should this parable do with us? There's another book on my shelf that I've not read. I bought only for the title. The title is, If I Should Wake Before I Die. I don't even know what's on the inside. I only wanted the title so that occasionally when I look over my shoulder, I will see that sentence. If I should wake before I die. Jesus sits in a long conversation now with Pharisees and disciples and onlookers, and they're debating about their treasures and about inheritances and about money. And Jesus says, be careful, put your treasure with God. If you treasure what God treasures, your heart will catch up. And the Pharisees disagree with Jesus on how he expends his capital. He expends it in his relationships. They're engaged in a debate, in a long debate, when this parable of the rich man and Lazarus drops into the story. God gives Lazarus a name, God helps. Because apparently the people aren't. If you all should wake before you die, Jesus says to the people, maybe we're the five brothers. Maybe we're more like the five brothers back home because I'm not the rich man and I'm not the poor man. And if we are, we don't need supernatural communications either, friends. We don't need any. Fancy storytelling because we have eyes in the world. Because we have YouTube and TED Talks and so many sermons over the years and generations. Because we see what we see when we move around the world. We don't need supernatural conversations from the grave. We certainly don't need the threat of a never-ending torture. We also have this thing called the sacred text. We have these words of life. We have this book We claim to live by. So can I take you back to one of the words in this book, in this story? Lazarus is carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. To his bosom. Depending upon your Bible translation, it will say, it's used twice in verse 22 and 23, we find Lazarus in Abraham's bosom, but your Bible translation may say Lazarus is at his side or he's in his lap or he's next to him or he's with Abraham. There's only two Bible translations that are courageous enough. Some scholars say this is where we kind of of edited things. It's such a scandalous word, bosom, bosom. So we say Lazarus is at his side and in his lap. Two translations, if you read the Amplified Bible, if you read the uh, King James Bible, your Bible will say squarely, Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham. The bosom is the place on the body we all have between our two arms. It's the chest, it's the breast, it's the space of parental nurture and security and safety and calm. At the bosom of a parent is the safest place for a baby to be. They call it skin time now, right? When the babies are born, we quickly try to get them to their parents' skin. Because we know that's the place of parental safety and security, especially for premature infants. We just count the hours and days till they can get skin time. When our little one was tiny, our firstborn Amanda, there was a day she was screaming and we couldn't figure out what to do. She and I, home alone, and I stripped her of all of her clothes and I put her straight on the top of my chest and wrapped a bathrobe around us and she cried and I cried and she cried and I cried until finally the bosom of a parent brings calm. Abraham takes Lazarus into the mighty bosom and embrace of God, and the rich man sees people are headed to the bosom of the Creator. That's what I'm missing. The bosom of Abraham. It's an important word that's not in most of our Bible readings of this, the chest, the breast, the space of love. Lazarus rests in the bosom of God. Everyone is headed for the bosom of God, friends. Luke intends to tell us that from the beginning chapter all the way to the end of the resurrection tales, everyone's headed to the bosom of God. Too bad we can't quite get that little word out in our Bible story. Lazarus rests. What are Americans supposed to do with this story? I want to ask you what's at your gate today? And where do you feel tempted to be indifferent or dismissive of what's in your space today? Because it will look like something different for all of us when Albert Schweitzer, the scholar, who happened to be a philosopher and a New Testament scholar and, by the way, a world-class organist, a Bach specialist, When he had studied enough about Jesus and particularly landed on this parable at age 30, he goes back to medical school. By age 37, he's off to West Africa. He's starting a clinic. He sells his worldly belongings. He starts a clinic in West Africa, near Cameroon, Congo, Republic of Congo, opens a clinic, and then finally a hospital, a hospital that served that part of the country, their country, for more than 100 years. Because he realized everyone's destined to the bosom of Abraham and there were Lazaruses in West Africa that didn't have medical care. That was what was in front of his gate. But most of us won't sell everything and move to West Africa. I was touched by James Kim's story this week. If you're following our blog, and you can sign up online, by the way. James tells a story as an ER physician, and I want to read just a few of his sentences. He says, remembers this uh, time recently when a patient came into the ER, Mr. X. Mr. X is soiled and intoxicated and seems to have become James's personal patient. James says, I seem to be the unfortunate one that's on duty when he comes in. He must be mine. And the shadowing medical student respectfully asks permission to see the patient, and James says, you don't need to, I I already know this guy. He's been here numerous times for intoxication just this past week. The paramedics bring him in, he sleeps it off, he'll start cussing at everyone. This is pretty much how the cycle's going to go. James walks away and then he says, he caught himself. Did I really just say that? Did I really just think that? He says, I satisfied my professional obligations, but I didn't do anything that constituted a genuine effort to promote Mr. X's well-being. We call that the Holy Spirit, by the way. Something caught James, and so he went back And he interacted with the patient, and for the first time, he hears the patient's story, and he hears of a traumatic injury, and he hears of chronic pain, and he hears about alcohol and drugs that soothe that chronic pain in his life, and he offers to pray, and they think about treatment programs together, and James says, is there anything else I can do for you? And the man says, would you mind calling my father? There's a father James goes to the phone thinking this is going to be a dead-end phone call. A man answers on the other end. James says, I'm Dr. Kim. I have your son here. The father interrupts him. Don't hang up. Keep him. Keep him. I'm on my way. We've lost him. He's been gone for a long time. And James is thinking of the prodigal son. But I am thinking of the rich man and Lazarus. I'm seeing James who saw what was at his gate just that day. I'm seeing James James, who hears the Holy Spirit say, everyone's headed for the bosom of God so no one gets indifference today. I'm seeing the rich man and Lazarus play out in James' story this week. Everyone's headed to the bosom of God. Who's in your pathway? Who's in your pathway? They might be tiny. And they might be aging parents. And that might be not the stage of life that you're in right now and you have capacity for some other things you see. They might be neighbors and they might be colleagues and it might be here in Ward 7 and it might be people in the Seventh-day Adventist church who, who we, with whom we disagree but are also headed to the bosom of God. Who is in your gate, at your gate today? Rock of my soul in the bosom of Abraham the grace of God is so high I can't get over it it's so low I can't get under it it's so wide rock of my soul and you can imagine just a soothing back and forth with the rhythm of that song can't you as the bosom offers comfort and safety the first time that little tune was recorded was 1940, and as we end this morning, I want you to listen to the sound file. 1940, the Library of Congress says, this little tune we sang earlier is actually a collection of American slave songs from the South. We imagine it's written in the 1840s, 50s, 60s, so think of ourselves as slaves on uh, working someone else's farm or plantation in the American South. Imagine real life Lazarus is doing work for the wealthy man. And imagine this little tune coming out of the mouth of American slaves. Listen today.
1: soul, oh, soul. my soul. And up, I'm a my soul. And in the calm yeah, downing, driving out in water. Calm down just driving out in water. Calm downing, just driving out water. Oh, rockin' my soul. Look up yonder, what I see. Oh, rockin' my soul. Look up yonder, what I see. Oh, rocky my soul. Look up I sing, oh, rock in the rockin' my soul. Hey, Bullenaphee, I'm a rock in my soul. Bullenaphee, I'm a rock in my soul. The bullenaphee, I'm a whole rock in my soul. Hmm.
0: Everyone is headed to the bosom of God. Amen.